Uh, last week in the study, we, uh, I think it was the 15th chapter we finished up, correct? I told you I had a little, Yeah, I know we did. I had a little bit of problems because we were uh, going the different studies and all. But I know we finished with the 15th chapter. And I said we'd, we'd finish up in a loose way uh, through the rest of Numbers, and then our emphasis will come on those first several chapters in uh, Deuteronomy. In uh, the 16th chapter, we have the rebellion of uh, Korah and the group against uh, Moses. And uh, uh, Moses will tell them that, you know, they're going to lose their life in the process. And verse 29, he tells them if they died a natural death, then God had not spoken through him. And the whole point of whether it's the ground swallowing up 250 people here who have rebelled against Moses, or whether it's a situation with the guy who was stoned to death for breaking the Sabbath day, the reason for these real strict punishments at the very first is that God is establishing to these people. Keep in mind that the law isn't just to these people. God wants that law carried down for generations. He know, God knows it's going to be 1,500 years until Christ comes. And it's going to be people that copy that law and carry it down. And so God wants them to reverence and respect that law and to think of it as something that is beyond Moses. And it was these very things that happened and all the miracles that took place and the way God fed them and all that so impressed their mind that caused that kind of reverence and respect for the law of Moses. And, and so you and I were not there, okay? I didn't see the ground swallow them. I didn't see the man uh, in the Sabbath situation. I didn't see the miracles and all. But there's something I, I do see, and it's sort of like when we, when we talk about the uh, existence of God and we reason in a cause and effect relationship, saying that for every effect there's a cause and the cause is equal to or greater than the effect, and we can see the design and things of that nature. You can do the same thing with, with history. And when we go back here, I can take this material back to 1,500 years before Christ, and I can see a people that historically, as a matter of fact, had so much reverence and so much respect for it that they brought it down unblemished all the way down to Christ and even to this present day. And so much reverence and respect that they have for it that some of their copyists, whenever they copied the material, refused to write the name for God and leave a blank place. In fact, uh, although the Jehovah's Witness make a big deal on the word Jehovah, the truth is the, the real name given to God, we lost the pronunciation of it because they refused to pronounce it. And so we've got Y-H-W-H, and we put a couple of vowels in there and come up with Yahweh, and then we put two words together and anglicize it and come up with Jehovah. Uh, but really, the Jew just simply quit pronouncing it, and many times he wouldn't even write it. But what that shows us, something caused that kind of respect and reverence. All right? As they handle this material and copy it in such a meticulous way and bring it on down to the time of Christ, when we compare this with other documents that are in antiquity, there's nothing you can compare to it. In other words, there has never been a body of literature, there's never been a law that was so reverenced and so respected that it was passed on generation after generation after generation, and there was still that kind of reverence and awe. It just simply never happened. For example, who reverences and respects Hammurabi's code of law? 
that goes back 200 years before that. Who reverences and respects or stands back in awe at the Republic written by Plato containing the philosophy of Socrates? Or who reverences and respects uh, Aristotle or Schopenhauer, whoever it may be. That, I mean, they're just there, and that's their philosophy. So there, there is a, an effect there that carries on down, and somebody's got to deal with what caused that. And that initial generation was not taught it by their parents. It had to happen there. And then they had to do some sort of sensational job of driving that in the mind of their children, and then it'll come on down from that point. And then also, it's going to be carried by prophets that are going to deal with it all up, in, all up through the years until we have the completed Old Testament. And the very fact that we continue that feeling uh, is evidence that uh, this law, see, not only do we have these things happening, but the things that it said, speaking forth into the future, will all come about in their history as, as it unfolds. And so we can show a historical cause and effect thing where we get back to a situation where you cannot come up with a cause that's adequate separate and apart from here. In other words, my mind simply cannot go back and say, think of a cause adequate to cause this kind of effect historically without the kind of thing you're reading here, and I just can't come up with it. And, and you look at all history, and you never find any philosopher, never any king, any lawgiver, anybody given anything that causes that kind of reverence and respect to be carried down through the censors itself. Another thing with the material, and that is that obviously if something doesn't work, you discard it. Even in our own society, for example, that although we refuse to, uh, as a society, identify homosexuality as a wrong lifestyle or something that's immoral, but it's causing so much problems that we are now at least doing everything we can to fight permissiveness uh, in, in our permissiveness in the society itself. We're trying to get the young people not to be so sexually permissive. Uh, monogamy is on the increase. Divorce is now slightly on the decrease and moving that way. That it's a matter of, of bending to, to what actually works. And so as they take this law and come down, in order for them to continue with that kind of reverence and respect, they would have to experience a situation in their history where they saw that it worked when you did it, and you had all kinds of problems when they did when you did. And so what we see, they experienced. That they experienced that, that when they did it, it worked, and things went well. When they didn't, there were consequences. Okay, Moses now uh, drives home the point uh, that, that the law is from God. Uh, he does it in such a way that all the emphasis is put on the law and not on him, and we have the death of Nathan in that group. In the budding of Aaron's staff, the miracle that was involved there, again, God just emphasizing that Aaron was his chosen priest, uh, that God has chose that family for a particular reason, and that uh, this would go into the Ark of the Covenant along with the Ten Commandments and the pot of manna as a constant witness to these people. And again, when we look at that, we leave this event here. Remember what they have challenged is Aaron's right to be the only priest and Moses' right to be the only prophet. And from this point, all through the history of Israel, the Levitical priesthood will never be challenged again. And all up to the time, there, it, was not, it was out of the question. Well, then how do you explain that? That uh, we, we do not find, try to find anything in history among the dynasties of China, among the pharaohs of Egypt, among any kings, 
where you can go 1,500 years and the supremacy of one family over everybody else will never be challenged. Well, there has to be something to cause that. Well, the Jew had as a constant witness for hundreds of years there, there was this Ten Commandments and the Ark of the Covenant written by God himself, and there was Aaron's rod that budded, and then there was a pot of manna. And it was there as an absolute constant witness to them. And again, the impact that there had to be something great here that happened is shown in the fact that when Jesus comes on the scene 1,500 years, the Levitical tribe being considered the priest uh, of the nation is not even challenged. In fact, remember that uh, one of the problems they had with Jesus was that he was not of the tribe of the Levi. And so uh, when the Hebrew writer addresses this, he has to point out that he was a priest after or the order of Melchizedek and tell them that, you know, Melchizedek was before the Levitical priesthood and, it, and his priesthood was not based on lineage but on a choice by God and then he has to go to a prophecy in the Psalms that he would be that way. But the very fact he goes through all that sophisticated argument in Hebrews lets you know that Christians were being argued with by the Jews that Jesus could not be the priest that they looked forward to because he was not of the, not of the tribe of Levi. But again, the question is, along with the law, the priesthood of the Levites is fixed in their mind. That's an effect. It goes all the way down to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The Jews believe it so strong today that with the destruction of the temple, we're doing away with the Levitical priesthood, the Jews today do not offer animal sacrifices. In other words, there's no Jew that's coming up and say, hey, this is silly. It really doesn't matter what tribe that we can pick priests from among us and we can go ahead and worship God. They simply don't do it. And somebody's got to explain that kind of impact uh, from a cause and effect way that comes on down through the years. The 18th and... Uh, chapter deals with the various offerings. Uh, the priest would be supported by the tithing of the individuals, the people. They would tithe themselves. They were also given uh, the cities of refuge were operated by the priest. The priest would be given animals and portions of land within the tribes of the others. The 19th chapter on the cleansing of the water. Again, remember all of the cleansing that takes place in here. Uh, behind it all, you've got this germ that, uh, uh, in a, that God is picturing something spiritually by something physical. It's interesting, if, if we think about it, that God could have made things any way he wanted to. Isn't it interesting that uh, dirt breeds uh, what we call filth, breeds germs, and uh, when you start out teaching your little children health, the number one thing you start teaching them is cleanliness, and we've even got little slogans like cleanliness is next to godliness, but it's, it's a matter, when we get cut, first thing we want to do is clean that wound. And so it's interesting that God gives us a physical parallel to the same thing he teaches spiritually, that, that we know that with, with filth also come the germs that, that can kill us. And so in a physical way, God constantly emphasizes this, and these people are bathing and washing in a, on a continual basis, and the people that do the most bathing and the most washing are the priests. Twentieth chapter feeds them water from the rock in a miraculous way, and of course it's going to be from uh, the incident of giving them water from the rock that, uh, that Moses will lose his own right to go into the land of Canaan. He, he did not, he was aggravated, mad at the people, did not honor God, 
he's rebuked, does not go into the land. And it's interesting, if you get to heaven, you're going to see Moses. And to me, what is shown here, Moses was rebuked. Look at verse 12 here. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community in the land I give them. God didn't want Moses honored and reverent. He wanted himself and his law. And he expected Moses to handle the law and everything God said so as to give honor to God. And Moses didn't do that. The, the statement before that, in verse 10 and 11, Moses said, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then he raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and so God fulfilled. But Moses didn't do it in a way that, that would bring the honor and all to God. It seems like that he was putting himself up there as something a little bit special. Yeah, I guess that we is the key word. That you know, you always look at that and wonder, well, what did he do that was so bad? But it's like we are going to do it, you know, that yeah. we're able to do it, and he wasn't able. Yeah, I know in the, the uh, legalistic type thing that, uh, you know, what I was brought up in, and Jack and Louise and Barbara and all too, that the emphasis was, well, uh, he was told to hit it three times and he only hit it twice, you know. And, and so, in other words, if he'd have hit that third time, he'd have been okay. But that's not what's said there. It says, you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, and you will not bring this. And the point is, whatever way it was, even if it was something like, if it was that and all, the point is that his, his problem was a heart problem. That he, he literally, he was aggravated with the people. They just didn't handle that in the way that showed the reverence and, and respect for God. When I read this, I also think of a similar thing, different but similar, in the New Testament, where... Uh, Paul states that he prayed to God three times to remove the thorn in the flesh. That uh, was an obvious physical problem to him. And God didn't do it. And he gave him the reason why. He said that lest you be exalted on account of the many revelations. It's like that, again, Paul wrote at least 13, maybe 14 letters in the New Testament, depending on who wrote Hebrews. And he outdid all the other apostles, and God used him in such a big way because of his faith and his complete conversion. But the danger in that was that he did so much through Paul that people would exalt Paul, and God didn't want that. He, Paul was going to die, and he wanted, the, he wanted Paul's letters exalted. And so it's interesting that, that he turned providentially. Paul was not a great dynamo of a speaker. Uh, he had a physical problem. He apologized for his physical appearance. Uh, he was in pain. He was a sickly type individual. The word Paul itself is a nickname. It means little man. So he was a he was a little person. And again, God makes it clear, and and it's true that in, in all of all the people you can study in history, who is there that has anybody that's going to compare with the Apostle Paul in the effect that he's had? And yet it's interesting that Christians from the very first have never emphasized Paul. It's his writings and what he said. And Moses the same way, that uh, when they go in, to me, by not allowing Moses to go into the land of Canaan, what that says to the people is that the important thing is what God said to Moses and not Moses, that he's a carrier and a messenger. But the important thing is what God says. I also think we can learn a lesson, and that is that, that uh, if we present God's word, whether it's publicly or in any way, that the, it ought to always be done in such a way 
that all of the emphasis is on God. And that's another one of the problems I have with some of the evangelism and the way it's portrayed on TV with all the, the mech up and the emphasis on the person. And uh, it's like so much emphasis is put on that individual as being such a great person, whatever, whatever it is. I mean, we have to think he's great because he's worthy of a million and a half dollar salary and a couple million dollar house and, and all of whoever, whoever he is. And uh, in reality, the, if they're doing their job the way it should be, I think it ought to be done so that all emphasis is, is put on the word and the message itself. Uh, they start their journey now uh, towards the land of Canaan. We've got the uh, uh, emphasis with the bronze snake where poisonous snakes bite the people because of their, their unbelief and their, uh, their griping and blighting. Moses lifts a snake up. Jesus uses that as an example in the New Testament uh, that as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so he would be lifted up if they turned and looked by faith on that thing, they could be cured. God, I'm sure, knowing at the time that he would use that as a type of the Christ later to come. Um, How about verse 16 of 20s? It's kind of interesting where it says that an angel, that the Lord sent an angel that brought him out of Egypt. Yeah. Uh, 20 and 16. Remember, he said in Exodus 23 that he would send his angel before them and we're going to see that when they go in that several times we'll read statements like that the hailstorm killed more of the enemy than the Israelites did and that when when we have the cloud that, that leads Moses uh, by, by day and we've got the fire by night obviously that a cloud doesn't have any intelligence or a fire there has to be intelligence there the angels manifest themselves as a burning bush, as a cloud, and fire, as chariots that are on fire, or as human beings. But the angels can manifest themselves in any way they so desire. And I think that's good to point out that it was the angel that spoke to and yet manifest, or led them, but yet manifested in a way that they could see in a physical sense. Well, the Hebrew writer brings out that they were led in the kingdom by an angel, and that they compared Christ being greater than the angel because he was leading them into the eternal. And interesting, the angels, uh, they, just, they, they just really fascinate me, the study of angels, uh, when you read, just like in the New Testament, that, that even in the New Covenant, that the angels are God's ministering servants. They're ministering spirits for those of us who will inherit salvation. And we talk so much about the providence of God. And then the question is, how does God do it? And he, and he tells us, and I don't, without the angels working in the realm of providence, I don't see how life could be anything but a matter of chance. That whether I made it any place I go, on the highway or any other way, would be 100% chance. And, uh, and, and the same, same with anybody else. And I don't even know how God could make promises like, Seek and you shall find, and knock and it shall be open, and asking you shall receive, except for the, you know, the active intervention on our, in the providential care of his people. I guess you can only guess how many times that's happened. Yeah, in other words, the specific instance, just like Joseph, he didn't understand at the time. He just, he, he looked back as an old man over his life and he could see God was in the picture and, and it all worked out for his good, but he sure didn't understand it at the, at the time. All right, in the 22nd chapter, uh, Balak uh, 
summons Balak to Balaam to try and curse the Israelites. Uh, we see that God, although Balaam uh, was not an Israelite, that, that in the land that God is speaking through these prophets, and God spoke through Balaam. And he called on God, and, and we can see an example here that, that the prophet had a free will and a free choice. And Balaam actually wanted to curse Israel because Balak was offering them a lot of money. And God kept speaking to Balaam, and Balaam got rebuked along the way, and later on, Balaam will actually be a part in leading the Israelites into sin, and God will kill him. But we see that God delivers, again, we see something about inspiration, that it wasn't just off the top of that man's mind, that Balaam is delivering a message here that is what Balak don't want and what Balaam doesn't want to give. And yet it was the message that he was given. Finally, the Lord told him to go, right? Right. He goes ahead and goes. And it says he was angry. And I guess it's sort of like a child that says, can I do something? You don't want him to do it. But then yeah. they keep nagging you and you, you say, well, go on, you know. But you really meant that they wouldn't do right. that. Right. He just kept asking. And after he had been told no, and then of course obviously there was something wrong even in the way he left or his manner or something. He was anxious to get out there and he wanted to do it for the money because God came close to killing him. At least he let him know that he wasn't, wasn't pleased with him. In chapter 25, uh, Israel is staying in, in Shittim. The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. And the people ate and bowed down before the gods. And of course, remember all the way through here when it talks about the sexual immorality and the worship of their gods, these were fertility gods, and the way they worshiped was in fornication. And we look at it and we say, how in the world could these crazy Israelites be led into something like that? Keep in mind, they can't see their god. They've been brought up in idolatry. They go into the land, and this is a land flowing with milk and honey, and the agriculture is very prosperous, and they look at all that prosperity, all right? Every people that we read about in antiquity tied their prosperity or their lack of prosperity to their belief in whatever God they serve. And so when they go into the land and they see the, the strength of these people and all their agricultural prosperity, well, the question is, how are you doing this? Well, we're, we're worshiping Baal. And obviously, Baal must be doing something right. And so then they would look and see how successful that these people were in that. They'd get sucked right into it. And then, of course, the condemnation would come. And before it's over, God will... This is the way that Balaam uh, was a part in enticing Israel. And God will take the life of Balaam. Also, the New Testament writer has something to say on this. And again, before we're too hard on them as to how foolish they were, that all we have to do today is put ourselves in a situation in our own society where you're in business or you're doing various things and you see people that are being dishonest and successful. And it's very, all the time we see good people uh, who started out with right information and all, with everybody else around them doing wrong things and seemingly having a good time being very, or being very prosperous or whatever it is, they get sucked right into the same thing. And we see it with morals, and we see it uh, financially. It's like that article that we looked at. It said the top 100 companies on Fortune Magazine's top 500 were the greatest offenders of all the rest put together. 
and, and yet they were the most most prosperous. I think another interesting encounter with the angels is in the twenty second chapter with Balaam's donkey. Yeah, that's the where God almost killed him. Yeah, where you know God was angry because he went, and then the um, angel stood in the road with a sword in front of his donkey, and the donkey couldn't wouldn't go on, and then he beat the donkey because he wouldn't go, and then God opened his eyes and he saw the. Well, the donkey spoke to him. The donkey saw again. We can see how that uh, the angels could manifest themselves, and God allowed the donkey to see the angel, and Balaam he didn't, and then he manifested so Balaam could see too. We have several instances in the Old Testament of where the angel being there, and the angels in the spirit realm, and then could not be seen until he manifested himself purposely so that he could be seen. In fact, it's interesting to me that whole thing of the angels that uh, when Jesus said, speaking of our resurrection, we'd be like the angels. And uh, I think sometimes even we deal with the resurrection of Christ, I'm not sure that we, we do it justice in trying to get it down to the fully understanding it. Uh, when Jesus was raised, he could appear in a room with the door shut and then he was out. And he could be out on the sea or they could be walking and he was just there or he'd be with them and they couldn't recognize him and he could be recognized. It's like he, he simply manifested himself in any way he wanted to with the situation. He could, he could tell uh, Thomas to put his hands and fill the places and all and yet he could be gone that quick. But he, had, he, he could, had total control of the form that he was in. Okay, and up to the 26th chapter we have the second census of, of Israel. Uh, in the uh, 27th chapter, the question that comes up there, the, a man has daughters with no son. It involves the inheritance. The law is passed on that when a man did not have son, the inheritance would pass through his daughters. In the 22nd verse of the 27th chapter, uh, Moses identifies Joshua as the man will to succeed him. And look at what happens. He took Joshua had him stand before Elizabeth the priest and the whole assembly, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him. And so now we see why that they're going to follow Joshua. It's because Moses has endorsed him before all the people. And then remember, after Moses dies, God will perform a miracle and work through Joshua. They'll walk through the Jordan River just like they did in Egypt. Again, we, have, we were not there. We didn't walk across the Jordan as on dry ground. Uh, we didn't see the things involving Joshua, but then the question becomes from a cause and effect standpoint. How do we explain the fact that the Israelites will now begin to reverence and respect Joshua, that they will respect the book of Joshua, uh, and that, uh, that his writings and, every, and everything, that they're going to reverence it and respect it and carry it down in the same vein that they did Moses, how do we explain that except on the basis of the event as it's recorded here? And what is true here will be true not only with Joshua, but with each of the ones that come along and, and, and replace him. Uh, the 28th chapter, simply in the 29th, deals with the various offerings, and I think we've already talked about those uh, in the book of Leviticus. In the 30th chapter, uh, the thing on vows, uh, the uh, one principle there that I thought was interesting is that uh, silence 
is equal to condolence. That if a man has a daughter or a wife who make a vow, he can stop that vow by simply speaking up. He was in control of his house. If he spoke up, then she was not obligated to it. He had to okay it. But even though the man didn't say anything in an agreement, if he heard the wife or the daughter making a vow and he said absolutely nothing, then she was bound by it. And there was no way that he could get away from it. And in God's eyes, his silence was a condolence of it. And I think that same principle, uh, I think with ourselves as Christians, that, uh, that uh, when things are going on that is wrong, uh, whether it's in a conversation or in the workplace or work, I really believe that we have a responsibility to speak up, and that's an area where we are a light, and, and to simply sit back and not get involved because we don't want an argument or be different or anything like that, that the silence itself tends to condone whatever's being said or, or done. That's in verse 10, following that. Right. Okay, God takes vengeance on the Midianites, and they are pretty well wiped out in the event recorded in the, the 31st chapter. Balaam is killed in verse, verse 8. They, verse 8, they killed Balaam, son of Deo, with the sword. And Balaam was involved, and there will be more said on him in the New Testament, in the deceiving of Israel and leading them into the idolatry and the fornication that we just read about earlier. In the 32nd chapter, uh, the statement concerning the division of the land and the two tribes that would keep their inheritance, two and a half tribes this side of the Jordan River. Uh, the next part simply deals with the uh, traveling uh, of the Israelites in the 34th chapter, the boundaries. Uh, in the 35th chapter, we have the cities of refuge given to the Levites and anybody that actually took a life could flee to one of these cities of refuge, and there it would be determined by the judges whether it was intentional. It was not murder unless it was intentional. The reason they needed the city of refuge, God's death penalty was enacted by family members then. That if somebody murdered uh, one in your family, the next of kin had the God-given command to take his life. And so that any time there was a, a death, that this family member actually had that responsibility. And so if it, it was an accidental thing, you might have somebody in anger to take his life, and so he fled to the city of refuge, and then under the, the judge and the priest and all there, he would be protected until his case was heard and decided upon. And that's in verse 12. Right. Okay, let's go into Deuteronomy. Anybody with any uh, comments you'd like to make over anything in Numbers? Okay, Deuteronomy, the... Uh, as you can see right in the introduction, the second law, the word dude itself means second, second stating of the law, and that's exactly what happens here. Uh, Moses knows that he's going to die, and he's not going into the land of Canaan. And, and we're reaching the end of the line as far as Moses is concerned. And so Moses does the very natural thing. He just simply goes back, he recounts some things in their history, the most important things, He's going to give the law again. He's going to give some commentary on the law. And, and he is like uh, you and I might be with anything. You've, you've taught something over a period of years. And now you've got this one last shot. And you're going back and, and sum it up and try to drive home how important it is. And so for the, when the Jew read their law, like in the synagogue, what they generally were reading was the book of Deuteronomy. 
In other words, that this contains the Ten Commandments, and it contains all these choice features and everything like that. And the reading of the law generally involved the reading of the, the book of Deuteronomy. Let's see on that first part there if there's any... Uh, Oh, on their choice of people, I think that's interesting, the choosing of leaders in verse 13. Choose wise, understanding, respected men from each of your tribes, and I'll set them over you. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you. And then in verse 17, they're told, uh, do not show partiality in judgment. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of any man. Judgment belongs to God. Again, their leaders, notice how this will be carried right on over into the New Testament, that when they come into the church, the elders were wise, understanding, mature, spiritual people that were to be over the various congregations. Uh, and again, uh, when we look at those qualifications and we see here that age was one of the factors involved, uh, one of the problems I think we've had in religion in getting away from this, that really we developed a pastor system where many times you've got a young man that's even in his 20s that would be the pastor or the reverend of that particular congregation. Or we take some, uh, some individual, that uh, whether he's the TV evangelist or whoever it is that we're sending money to and we're looking up to, if you were around a Jimmy Swaggart, or a, a Jim and Tam, Tammy on a regular basis and you were part of their congregation, I think you would see all those things that, that come out. And so these people and the early church would actually choose out from their midst people that they recognized as having these spiritual qualifications. They knew it and their way of life was there and uh, they would be the ones chosen to be, to be the leaders. In the, uh, let's see, uh, Coming out of verse 25, where he gets to the penalty. Uh, uh, Mark, would you read that verse, uh, let's see, 29 through verse 39. Okay. Then I said to you, do not be terrified, do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you, as did for you in Egypt before you, your very eyes and in the desert. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to you to give to your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jebediah. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the, lands, the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also, and said, You shall not enter it either. But your assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children, who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. Okay, so he, he tells them why they didn't go in, and then I think the, well, that's a key passage in using, with studying with people on various things. Number one, the uh, doctrine of total depravity, 
or that you are born in sin and that you're incapable of any good or anything to your mind is in some sense of uh, regenerated that uh, we can see here that the you have to reach an age where you have an understanding of right and wrong before you're accountable to God and so those children were not accountable to God they were not guilty for their father's sin and as we're going to run into this statement several times in, in the law and later on in the prophets that the, the father does not bear the sin of the son and the son does not bear the sin of the father that so that sins it will die and there is an age now it's interesting on what they're calling children when we think of children we think of little bitty fellows and and this is something we got to fix in our mind from the Jewish thinking you didn't have to be a little bitty fellow to be a young person with Israel and in this case their little ones were those under 20 years of age and they were numbered for battle at uh, 20 years of age and when the penalty is passed out that generation that was destroyed by God was all of those 20 years of age and all and I don't think there was any magic moment from 19 to 20 but God had to give him something to work with and that's what he used as 20 but at least allows us a ball game figure of, of knowing when uh, certain things I'm not so sure that we uh, bring uh, we bring accountability down too low um, and I'm not saying that 12 and 13 year old are not you know don't understand right and wrong and everything like that but uh, most 12 and 13 and early teens uh, that I think their right and wrong is based on what they've been taught by their parents and all now I think the environment and the teaching can be such that they can see, you know, and agree at 12 and 13 and all and, and, and see that kind of thing. Depends on the teaching and all. But really, for to, to get into it to the point that you honestly know certain things are right and wrong based on your experience and your observation and whether your parents are even around or not, I think you have to get a little older than that, uh, myself, so far as the... And here he used uh, 20 as a, as a figure. And when they reached that age, and at least the states that they knew and understood themselves uh, right and wrong and I have to understand this no meaning no in the sense of understand because obviously they had been told the Ten Commands and they had been probably could quote them and they had been told certain things were right and certain things were wrong but there was an age there when they were held accountable to it also the same principle would carry on to uh, in my mind whether you're talking about somebody that's retarded uh, maybe autistic or whatever the problem may be, that we're accountable to God in keeping with our ability to, to understand things. And I, in short, I think you could tell anybody that you talk to become a Christian and, and they understood the basics and submitted to the Lord and all, that, you know, study God's Word. Don't worry about anything you can, that you don't understand. That I don't, I don't believe there's a single solitary soul that has to worry about anything that he, does, that he doesn't understand. Any comment on anything through there? Before we find, I think it's kind of interesting where the people actually came back and they wept before the Lord that he paid no attention to them and turned a deaf ear to them. I think that's just a good example of where if, if you sin and just keep sinning, you can't, you don't have the privilege of prayer that, you know. Okay, they, uh, here, the, yeah, the impression to my mind by them coming back is that it was after the concert, they were hit with the consequence that then, you know, they, they come back and everything. 
And then the question is, is it out of total fear of the consequence not wanting it, or because they have a, a renewed interest in God and the right, the right attitude towards God? And, uh, and Paul, later on in the New Testament, will speak of a godly sorrow that works a repentance to life, and then a sorrow of the world, you know, that, that works a repentance unto death. That uh, I believe everybody in jail is sorry. But uh, that whether that individual is sorry that he sinned against God or because of the consequences. Barbara and I had the experience of, uh, uh, I won't mention, uh, I'll stay away from any kind of name or anything because of the tape and all, but of an individual that has uh, been an alcoholic for years and, and this person quit drinking and has been for a period of time. And uh, this person, you know, has a religious background where, you know, they definitely know a lot of things that are right and about God and things of this nature. And, and I've studied with them in the past. And so I thought, well, man, maybe this person's got a renewed interest. And it, it, now's the time to really talk to them about their soul and everything. Something's caused them to quit drinking, you know, quit drinking completely. And we went and, and talked with the person, invited them to our Bible study and to services and, and, and tried to get a conversation going on in religion. There was absolutely not one shred of interest in religion and coming to church in the Bible study. And he made it clear, although he didn't intend to be offensive anyway, he made it clear that his, his repentance was not because of God or the Bible or anything like that. He was going to die. And the, the doctors had told him that he was going to, that he was going to die. And that uh, he was having all kinds of problems. His liver was swelling and everything like that. And so he just looked at it and he wasn't ready to die. And so he quit drinking simply because he wanted to live more. So here you've got a case where a guy honestly and sincerely repented and changed his, his lifestyle, but yet uh, there was no religious uh, motivation. I'm sure that happens to any number of people in Alcoholics Anonymous or, or, or on drugs or wherever, that, uh, that there's a difference between being sorry that you have sinned against God or sorry you've hurt other people and repenting and in just simply saying, hey, this doesn't work, I'm going to do it another way, but I'm really not sorry you know, about what I've done or anything of that nature. And I think we're, we're in a danger in our own country. It's like I read this the other day, this 11-year-old girl that was uh, kidnapped in Harrison Bay and was raped, and the guy that raped her had kidnapped, no, he raped, yeah, uh, yeah it's two before some years before, he had kidnapped and raped two little 13-year-old girls. He was put in jail. He was now out on parole. And eight months, he just had put on parole in January. Eight months later, he gets a little 11-year-old and, and rapes her. Well, they thought he had been rehabilitated. Well, first of all, you know, you wonder when he's in jail, how many opportunities does he have to kidnap and rape a little girl? But second of all, you, we, we're doing that constantly in our society. And just because a person is behaving in a certain way, how would you behave? If you were given a life sentence and you know, knew that you could get out in five years by being good to everybody, well, you could very easily make an intellectual decision that I'm going to be very good and keep the rules in lane because I go out. And when I see so many people go out and do the same crimes, that's the only conclusion I can come to. Is that Repent because of sorrow, they saw the consequences. And that's, they didn't want that because mm -hmm. like Mark was reading, you know, it says your God carried you as a father carries his son. And in spite of all this, you did not trust in the Lord. And then in verse 34, when the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore that you couldn't go in. 
Then you replied, verse 41, we've sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight. Now they're going to go into Canaan and take it. And But then verse 42, but the Lord said, tell them don't go up and fight because I won't be with them. Yeah. And then um, they went ahead and, and went and they wept before the Lord and he didn't pay attention to them because it was just like they saw the conflict. This happened several times in a similar way. And later on when... God through the prophets is warning them about the destruction of their city by Babylon and carrying away. And then uh, it reaches the point where he tells Jeremiah not to pray for them because he won't even hear them. And then when the Sennacherib gets his army, not Sennacherib, but Nebuchadnezzar, gets his army right down to Jerusalem, people are ready to repent. And they're ready, they're ready to do whatever God, and they even come and acknowledge Jeremiah as a prophet of God. And God said no. You know, it's too late, and he had told them in advance. The thing of it is, when they see the army right there at the door, that's not repenting with faith in God. That's walking strictly by sight. I mean, who in the world, if you, if you get to the jail and the cop's standing there with his gun, who, who's not going to repent? And so God would accept it. The repentance wasn't worth anything. And it was 70 years later when a brokenhearted Daniel, weeping and crying and, and pleading and expressing sorrow on behalf of the people that God actually accepted the, the repentance of the individuals. A lot of people are, are sorry that they got caught. Yeah. yeah. But, and to show you the other side as to how much true repentance means, by the law of Moses, adultery was supposed to be the death penalty. And David was guilty of adultery, but you, and you have his prayer in uh, Psalms 51, and his statement in there, against you and you only have I sinned. And if you let me live, then I'll teach transgressors your ways. And, and says, I know that you're not satisfied with just animal sacrifices, but a broken and a contrite heart is what pleases you. And so David had a real understanding, and here's a man that not only committed adultery, but had a man killed. And if you get to heaven, you're going to be with David. And, and God accepted him and broke the death penalty. He, he was not killed. Godly saw. Sorry, yeah. he offended God. Yeah. Okay, uh, in the, uh, the next part, he recounts uh, their wandering for 38 years. Uh, God tells them to go into the land. He states it in an interesting way. Uh, let's see, where's the... Uh, uh, what I was looking for was a statement. Oh, here it is. In chapter 1, verse uh, 21... God has given you the land, go up and take possession. That they had to go in and fight, but yet God gave it to them. And the point is that they fought with their faith, and if they didn't fight, they didn't get it, even though God gave it to them. But the point is, God was going to give them victory based on their faith. And we get into the same thing in Christianity. Salvation is a free gift. But we, it's grace through faith, and we have to exercise our faith in the gift itself. And as God walks with us, uh, the writers make it very clear that it's, it's through our faith. And that if we don't trust in God, in fact, James even says that when we pray, we're wasting our time. That we're like a double-minded man that's unstable and that God won't even hear, hear the prayer. Okay, come on over to uh, chapter 4 and we'll end on these uh, verses here. Uh, uh, Nancy, read that verses 5 through uh, 9. 5 through 9. 
See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their God near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Okay, look, first of all, verse 6, observe them carefully. This will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, and then they're going to respond in such a way. That could not be except that man made an image of God has the inherent capacity to identify with right when he comes in contact with it. And God has said that if you teach these laws and live by them, other people are going to look at you and say, hey, this is wise. What nation has laws so right as this? In other words, they would look at that law and say, it's right, it works. And that's all we mean by righteousness, that the law actually works. He's saying the same thing that Jesus says in another way when he tells Christians that you're the light of the world, a city set on a hill. You don't hide your light under a bushel. Let your good works shine before men that they may see the Father or may glorify the Father in heaven. Obviously, unless God's law is inherently right in and of itself, and unless people are made in the image of God with this inherent capacity to relate, how could that be the case? And, it's, and I think uh, there's a lot here to think about. I mean, I, again, I tie this in also with Romans 2 where Paul says that the Gentile who did not have the law of his own conscience often did the things of the law and they bore witness within his own heart. When we speak of, of talking out against the wrong things in our society and speaking up and trying to lead others to the Lord and standing up for what's right, on the one hand we could look at how corrupt it is out there and be a little bit scared as to what the response is going to be. But I think there's something here that can cause a lot of boldness that if you think about it from the standpoint that everybody out there has made an image of God just like you are. And he has the inherent capacity to identify with right and wrong. And that when you present these moral principles, inwardly he identifies with them. And if he gets mad, it'll be because he doesn't, he's, he doesn't want to be honest enough or doesn't want to quit doing what's wrong. And he'll lash at you from that standpoint but inwardly identifies with them. I believe with all my heart that the homosexual, deep down in his own heart, knows that that practice is wrong. I just, when I, it is, uh, I don't, from a biological standpoint, it's obvious that the male and female body are designed for one another. And the conduct itself, when you read and see the pictures and all of what those people engage in, I don't see how in the world that they can do that in any kind of good conscience at all. And to me, that's where it's so important for in our society to point out that it's wrong. They say, well, you can't legislate morality. Well, I agree with that. God doesn't force his will on anybody. But by not ever endorsing it or never saying it's wrong or speaking out, we allow these people to escape their conscience. I think that it is so obviously wrong that if we constantly spoke out and if it was hit as wrong, 
that we might have the conscience of more of these people getting on them and we might have more people repenting or not getting into that kind of conduct, conduct in the first place. But I think we've got every reason to be able to stand up for what's right that deep down, I believe they know what's, know what's right. I believe the gal that runs out here in those little bitty short shorts and, and a halter, I don't care if she's ever been in a church building in her life. I, I believe that she knows exactly what she's doing and the wrong and all that's involved, involved in it. I don't know, whatever, they can act naive or whatever, but I think they, they too are made an image of God and they, they realize what is, wrong, what is wrong in that area. But he says they'll see your wisdom and your understanding. Uh, later on, the psalmist in Psalms 119, beginning with verse 97, will make the statement that I'm wiser than my enemies, I'm wiser than the aged, and I'm wiser than my teachers because of thy law. And then he goes on to say in that same psalm, through thy law I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Thy word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path, and the entrance of thy word gives understanding. And so he, he looked at this and recognized, I think, in the same way, that in a world where people pay $100 an hour to talk to a psychiatrist, uh, we have the perfect information right here. Another thing I can see in this is that when we talk about reaching people out there in the world, the, the, the biggest tool that we've got, I mean, I know that it's the, the gospel and the evidence is going to convert, and they need Jesus. But the biggest tool to get them to look is in the lives of the Christians. And, and if we're falling short, it's because of the lives that are being lived before the people, that uh, in, in the community where we live, there ought to be something in our families and in our marriages and the way that we conduct ourselves in the job and all that stands out is different and more successful than the type of lives that's being lived by, by those in the world. And also, I think that that's why that churches should not tolerate immorality. That it ought to be handled in just exactly the way the Lord says in order to try to get repentance. When the uh, uh, group that uh, Jimmy Swigert was with, the, uh, the Assemblies of God, I had immensely more respect for them after it was over. I mean, we, we talked about Jimmy Swaggart a lot, but it's like that that organization should really have been respected, that uh, uh, they lost millions of dollars per year that was fun, about 40% of their missionary fund came from his organization. And they knew when they did that that they lost all the money, and the prestige, and everything like that. And for their, them to go ahead and do that and to bar him from preaching within their group, you have to respect it. And, it, uh, and I think so on the one hand, everybody zeroed in on the negative, but there was a lot of positive in that, in that group in and of itself. And I think every group ought to do exactly the same way. And I, and I believe really, they were one of the few groups that would. I cannot picture some of the uh, liberal Episcopalian or, or Lutheran and some of that uh, the, of the, from the liberal element and all, I simply cannot picture them even contemplating. I think they'd laugh at the idea of withdrawing fellowship from somebody because uh, not letting them preach because of, of immorality. I mean, they're licensing homosexuals and all to preach. So you, you have to really respect them as a group that, uh, that did what was right in, in that area. Anybody with any other comments that you've got? Uh, he goes ahead and He's going to enumerate on the Ten Commandments. He mentions them here in the latter, latter part. Uh, on your own, think over those Ten Commandments one by one in your mind. Try to think of a way 
that you could say that much morally in so few statements. And think if you're going to think if you think you're going to improve on it in any way, I think you're going to have to add words. But it it stands to the present day. Uh, schools have hung them in their halls, even public schools and all. But I don't know how you improve on them uh, with any. Uh, we we make, we Jesus quoted, "Love God with all your heart and mind, and all your soul, and the second love your neighbor as yourself." But the point is, when you love your neighbor as yourself. You don't always know how to channel that love. And, and sometimes we do the wrong thing in love, and, and whether it's a parent to a child or a child to a parent or whoever. And the same with God. You can love God, but how do you know how to channel that love? And, and the love of God, and I think the way the law is fulfilled, is by love, not by doing away with the law. But the law is fulfilled because love motivates you to go ahead and channel, channel that love in the right way through the law. Any uh, observation at all for the calls for tonight? Okay, we'll pick up there with that fifth chapter next week then. Okay, okay let's pause there with that uh, 37th chapter and Next week we'll start there with uh, Joseph. We'll get into Joseph, and then I think that we'll be able to go ahead and, and finish up through the 50th, 50th chapter next week. Anybody with any comments or questions <clears throat> on this? Uh, the scriptures that you say says this is the account of Esau. Uh, most of what precedes that is talking about Jacob. Right. And then the part that says uh, 37.2 says this account of Jacob. Well, the part from 36 through, well, this be just chapter 36, was well, talking about Esau's family and his descendants. So did, did Esau write about Jacob? And yeah. Jacob and then you have uh, Jacob writing. And not only that, see what happens after verse 2 there is really Joseph uh, from this, this point on. So when it says this is the account of Jacob, Looks it means back. this is what Jacob wrote, right. not about Jacob. Right, okay. right. The, right. It's his account okay. that he has, that and it may nest. In other words, it whether it was his scribe that wrote it or what, but that was his account that he okay. owned. And it said that uh, <clears throat> he brought out in the book that uh, that when you read that it's account, it could mean that he wrote it. It could mean that he was just the owner of it. And it said the the most important thing to them. They didn't look on um, authorship in the same way that we do. In fact, like when we write anything, we give a bibliography and we give every little quote and everything like that. They didn't. Uh, they would quote without giving any credit whatsoever. And the and when you read the at the end of the tablet, the most of, what that was really letting you know is who owned that tablet. He may have written it or he may not have written it. But it is letting you know he, he at least agreed with it, and it was his, and he owned and he owned that tablet. Well, it seems kind of funny to me that, that this, uh, like in thirty-six, verse one says, "This is the account of Esau." Well, this, all the material preceding that, that was owned by him or written by him, is dealing with Jacob. I mean, and yeah, but in his deception and his father. All right, but then right here, like in uh, the part where it says it's the account of Jacob. He said Esau took his wives. 
In other words, looking to the third right. person, and you're saying Esau took his wives. Okay. Yeah, I guess it would make sense for him to write. Uh, you know, and keep in mind family. also that uh, how much more there was that you and I can only speculate. It's sort of like when Luke puts his material together and tells you that he has all these accounts and the eyewitness and all. Uh, scholars uh, for years thought that maybe that Luke debated as to whether Luke had and Luke and Matthew had access to Mark. You know, but well, we could only guess really at how much of the materials. Now they believe that. Mark, Luke, and Matthew all had access to a source that they call Q, along with other sources and everything like that, you know, because of the similarities and all. But again, we can only get back and speculate at all they was working with, you know, before they put the material down. And the same thing with Moses, that uh, uh, we can only guess at all that he was actually working with before he condensed into the form that we Right, and he wrote this down. Moses probably wrote this in his later years, too. Um, yeah, you know, after after they left Egypt and all, so he was eighty years old or older. So he had spent years and years and years looking, reading those. Uh, and he is keeping about he is just like the New Testament refers to him. He's educated all the ways of the Egyptians and all. He was, in fact, he would have been the only Israelite that I could come up with that had any education, mm -hmm. and that could actually read and write and everything, because he was brought up in the house of Pharaoh, and we can see again the providence of God. Moses would have never learned to read and write and, and, and learn how to handle history and do all the things that was going to be required of him had he not been brought up and given that education. Uh, another thing I think is interesting too there, I believe Christians, uh, because of emphasis on the Holy Spirit through the years, have not put the proper emphasis on the importance of education. And, and they just it's just like, well, it don't matter whether you got any education or not. You know, God calls you know, whoever, just like one lady was telling me we're not too long back, you know, uh, that God called her husband. It didn't matter about his education or whether he read or write or anything like that. But when you look at the Bible, really, the the people who did the most writing were very well educa educated. Uh, Peter, Andrew, James, John were fishermen. And they had, you know, it's when you read the two letters of Peter, when you read his speeches in Acts, it's obvious that he's operating with a limited education. I mean, his vocabulary, his method of speech, and everything. I don't believe it's any accident that Paul wrote about half the New Testament in Luke. That although Luke only wrote two letters, his material almost equals the 13 of Paul. But when you say Luke and Paul, you are saying primarily most of the New Testament. And, and he left it to Paul to completely explain the Christian system. But when you go back to the Old Testament, uh, the most educated of all the prophets was Isaiah. Well, he's also the longest and, and writes, you know, more than any one of the others. And uh, Daniel, very well educated and educated among the, the Babylonians also. But uh, I think when we look, we see that the people that actually did the writing were educated people and were involved, involved in, in those kind of skills and everything. They didn't just do it in some mystical way. Today, uh, we're almost suspicious uh, many times in Christendom of anybody that has uh, education and not even stopping to, to consider that you wouldn't even have the Bible in the English language if it were not for those scholars that were fluent in Greek and Hebrew and, and all of us benefit tremendously from the archaeologists and the historians and the people like Adam Clark and all that have spent their lives in, in study of that material. <coughs> 